to the choir master, according to the Giddith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her, he her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, and whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Soul Keeping is our current teaching series, the book of Psalms. Longing for God is the title of this weekend's message. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 84. We'll be di dissecting that chapter that was just read. Also grab your sermon notes out, and you'll see there's a quote at the very top of those sermon notes. Let me read that for you. If I have a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the explanation is I was made for another world. It's a quote from C.S. Lewis. We were made to find our deepest satisfaction in the only one in the universe who is deeply satisfying. In fact, our inconsolable human longing, everybody in here, everybody out there has an inconsolable human longing, whether you're in touch with it or not. We all have an inconsolable human longing. Our inconsolable human longing is evidence that we were made to see, savor, and show the riches of, of God's glory. That's why you're on this planet. That's why God created you, is to see, to savor, to show the riches of God's glory. Look at this next quote by C.S. Lewis. Human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. That's the root of all of our problems right there. We're consistently trying to find something other than God to make us happy. So to become a Christian is to recognize that our inconsolable human longing is really, is really a longing for God. When you're awakened to that reality, that's where you begin to enter into what God has for you. You recognize that you're separated from God and God has made a way for us to be reunited to him and only he can satisfy that inconsolable human longing. To be a Christian is to recognize that our inconsolable human longing is really a longing for God. And romance and marriage and having children and money and achievements, career, homes, cars and toys can never 
can never give you what only a relationship with God can give you. You realize that, so you begin to pursue God. So here's the question we're looking at, and I think this uh, Psalm 84 answers this question for us. How can I satisfy my longing for God? How to satisfy our longing for God? Or we could put it in another way. If, if intimacy with God is life's most satisfying reality, which you've probably heard me say that many times before, I'm, I'm convinced of that. I've experienced that. Many of you have experienced that. I think that's the essence of the Christian life. Intimacy with God is life's most satisfying reality. If that's true, then how can I grow in intimacy with God and be fully satisfied in Him? Psalm 84 answers that question for us. By the way, you need to know that intimacy with God is a privilege purchased for us on the cross. It's blood bought. And so it tells us in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, by grace through faith in Christ, we can enter into that intimacy with him. You can't do it on your own. There's no other way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. No one can have an intimate relationship with the Father except through Jesus Christ. It's blood bought. It's indispensable, amazingly costly. And so that's when we talk about this intimacy with God, you've got to go through through Christ Jesus. Now, I've got three D words there. I think this uh, psalm can be divided up into three sections represented through these three D words. So it begins, so if we're gonna satisfy our deepest longing in God, it begins with desire. And so this desire produces discipline, will become disciplined in our life, and through discipline or spiritual disciplines, we will experience more and more delight in God. Desire discipline, delight. Now, just to make sure that if you're, you're paying attention here this morning, turn to the people around you and tell them the three D words to finding our deepest satisfaction in God or growing in our intimacy with Him. Real quick, do that. Okay, I think most of you sound like you got that. Some of you are saying, what D words? What, what is he talking about? Where am I? What is this? Is this a church? Yeah, okay, time to wake up. Got a good study here in front of us. And so desire produces discipline that leads to delight. Now, let me give you a little background to this psalm. It says, to the choir master, according to the Giddith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Who are the sons of Korah? Well, I'm glad you asked because here they are. The sons of Korah were the doorkeepers or janitors in the house of God. We know that based on 1 Chronicles 26. So Psalm 84 is an expression of their longing for God and a joy in serving, even in the most simplest of positions and tasks in the house of God. So when it says in verse 10b, I would rather be a doorkeeper, a janitor in the house of God than to dwell in the, in the tents of the of the wicked, that's, that's who they were. They're quoting something here that was true to their lives. They were janitors in the house of God, and they would rather do that than to do anything else. And, uh, and so what we have here is this is intense language of, of love poetry, a rapturous yearning to be with God. The, the psalmist cannot contain his emotions as he thinks about being with God. So it begins with desire. Let me read the first couple verses here. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts, exclamation mark. It's just like, oh, this is what I long for. 
My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. So, so the psalmist here has a holy love sickness for God and finds the court the courts of the temple to be beautiful, not so much for its architecture, but because, because God is there. Now, this helps us to answer a couple of questions. I was reading through this, I was studying it. The first couple of thoughts that came to mind, I had a couple of questions, and is that it helps us to answer these two questions at least, how to pick a church, <laughs> and then why go to church? Why are you here? How to pick a church? Why in the world are you here this morning? And, and for the psalmist, it's not the architecture of the building. It's not that. And it's not how articulate the speaker is or how amazing the music or children's programs are. But it's because God is there. God is, is here. Why are you here this morning? I hope it's because God is here now, there's a difference between, and most people don't know this, there's a difference between man-centered churches and God-centered churches. A lot of man-centered churches, even in the community, in the United States, and there's not as many God-centered churches. There's more and more man-centered churches than God-centered churches. Man-centered churches is more about entertainment. How can we maintain and help to keep their attention, and we're going to try to do all these things, and it's more about behavioral modification, about your behavior. Do more. You can be more. Try harder. It's about self-help and how-to. You're going to get another dose of that week in and week out. You're going to have another list of the things that you need to do more. It's, it's very common in our culture today. People love that, actually. They, they always want to better themselves, and so I need another list. I need another self-help or how-to. But God-centered churches are, are not about entertainment. They're about an encounter with God. They're not about behavioral modification, they're about beholding the glory of God, the beauty of God, getting to know Him, because nothing will transform you more than, than doing that, being captivated by the beauty and the glory of God, and, and, and a church that helps you to do that. So, so what you need to do is find a church, hopefully it's this church, that helps to stir your appetite for God. That when you come in here, you want to encounter God. You want to know Him. And everything that we do helps you to see Him, to savor Him, so that when you leave here, you can show Him more contagiously to the world as you're enjoying Him and experiencing more and more of Him, a high view of God. That's what we need more than anything. Now, you've heard me say this before, and I'm gonna, I'll keep reminding you of this. What we do here on weekend services is a catalyst for life change. Real life change happens best in small groups. But, but all of that, and all that we do is, is ultimately to stir your appetite for God and to know Him and to love Him. And, and, and I'll, I'll explain that as we kind of walk through this text. But, but you can go to churches, and it's more of a lecture. Lectures give you information. Information can be good can be helpful, but it's not going to transform your life. Or you can have a motivational talk. They can motivate you, and that can give you action steps, but even action steps aren't going to transform your life. And so, you know, this is going to give you information. We'll give you some action steps. But a sermon is not a lecture or a motivational talk. A sermon makes you want to worship. It draws your heart. 
you begin to see Christ more clearly. You begin to love him more deeply. It draws you in. You just go, oh my goodness. I want him more than anything. I want to know his love, not just here in my head. I want to know it deep in my heart. So that's what you want. You want, you want to be a part of a church that fires your passion for Jesus more than anything. And you're going to see why that's so important in our lives. Look at uh, verse 2b, the second part. So he starts off by saying in this, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. And then 2b, my heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. My heart and flesh. I started thinking about heart and flesh. Okay, inside and outside. Heart, flesh. Not just my heart, but my body language, who I am. My, it, it longs for God. I want to express myself to God. So let me ask you this question. Does that describe how you were worshiping in song at the beginning of this service? My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. You see, worship is ascribing worth and value to God in such a way that it engages and energizes your whole being, your heart and your flesh. We're going to talk more about worship here in a few weeks. And so, uh, does that describe you? Now, I'm not picking on you. I'm not spying on you either, okay? Okay. I do have to say that this service was really expressive in their worship as I kind of looked around this morning, more so than the Saturday night crowd and even the early morning crowd. Maybe they have a good excuse for that, but, uh, but you guys did really well this morning. But, but some of you and some of them were way too stoic for who we are singing to. Does that make sense? way too stoic for who we're singing to. We're singing to the living God. And he says, my heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. What, what if someone said to you, I love God with all of my heart, and they sang the last couple songs that we sang, or two of the songs that we sang that were in the set, which was a beautiful set, amazing songs. They were really good. But they, but they said, I love God with all my heart, and yet they were standing there very stoic and as stiff as an ironing board, singing, as the deer pants for the streams of water, how my soul pants for you, O God, kind of just staring out into outer space and just kind of like very stoic. Or, or maybe they were, you know, or they were singing, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. But if you looked at them, you'd say, I don't think they actually believe that. Because it's not, it's not their heart, maybe their heart, certainly not their flesh, singing for joy to the living God. Now, I've heard the arguments out there. I've got people that attend here, friends, people that have said to me, I can worship God inwardly without much expression outwardly. It's not my personality to be overly exuberant. Okay, I, I, I've heard that. If that's true, if that's true, then, then at least tell your face that you're worshiping the living God, okay? <laughs> at, least, at least show something in your countenance because that's what he's saying. And I know maybe you came in here, you're really bummed out and you're down and out and you just need to soak and sit and listen to it. And, and I understand. And, and, and it's not always, you're not always exuberant in worship. Sometimes you're, you're uh, quiet and reflective and that's a part of worship. 
but, but you're going to reflect that in your body language. You're going to want to sing for joy to the living God, whatever it might be. You're going to be expressive in all that you do. And what if you... What if you saw that same person who said, I love God with all my heart, who was stoic and stiff as an ironing board at church, and then saw them later where their heart and their flesh were singing for joy to their, to their favorite team or, or their favorite vacation spot as they were telling you and describing to you, oh, you got to go to this place, this is an amazing place, using their hands and really sharing their heart or maybe their favorite food or dessert or favorite movie or TV show. Not in the least bit stoic or stiff. I, I really think that oftentimes when it comes to the things of God, we let pride interfere. Pride tends to make us too self-conscious rather than God-conscious. So we come in here and we become too self-conscious about the people around us. If I raise my hands, that seems, I mean, they might think I'm a little weird or whatever. Listen, this is what you need to keep in mind always is that you'd worry less about what people thought of you if you realized how little they did, okay? And let, let me say that differently. You would worry less about what people thought of you if you realized how much he thought of you and that you were worshiping the living God. If you came in here to worship the living God, you don't care about what people think about you. You just want to connect with him. We're talking living God. That's what he says here. My heart and my flesh, they cry out for the living God. God, I want to know you. I've come to encounter you. I don't need to be entertained. I'm, it doesn't even matter if the band's on or off or whatever they're doing or whether Pastor Ray is preaching in a motivating way or not. It doesn't matter. I'm here to to connect with you, God, to know you. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. And, uh, well, Pastor Ray, it took a long time to get to that first fill in the blank. <laughs> and that's the answer here. So this is a desire. So when we talk about desire. This is a desire for an encounter with a personal living God. Verse 2, he says, he calls them the living God, as opposed to a general belief in some remote, impersonal, divine force. Psalm 42, 1 and 2, it says, As the deer pants for the streams of water, how my soul pants for you, O God. Psalm 63, 1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That's my heart cry. And then look at verse, uh, verse 3. He says, even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at, her, at your altars. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. The sparrow is a symbol of worthlessness. The swallow is a symbol of restlessness. Here's your next fill in the blank. So this is a desire not only to encounter the living God, but a desire to find rest for your restless heart. That's what he's saying there in verse 3. I love what Augustine says in his confessions. He says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. So let me say that to you. Let me say that to me. I can be a very restless guy. I know that many of us here are very restless, and you'll never 
find rest until you find your rest in him. You will forever be restless until you find your, your rest in him. Only God can bring rest to your souls. That's why you need to have a high view of God. You need your appetite stirred up for God more than anything. And so too often, and I see this more with non-believers than believers, but I see it in believers from time to time also, and we too often believe the lie that our restlessness can be satisfied if we can just get a better job or a better spouse or better kids or get in better shape, and you can add to this list. If I could just get there, if I could just achieve that, if I could acquire that, if I could accomplish this, I know I would be happy. No, no, no. If you've got Christ, you have all of the happiness you'll ever need in him. Kind of curious, by show of hands, how many uh, have ever felt like you needed a better spouse? Just show of hands real quick. Okay, be careful. Oh. Okay, only the single people raise their hand. Okay, there's a number of single people. Nobody dare that are married raise their hand. I saw a guy or two kind of try to lift their hand, and they got a couple broken ribs then. Yeah, nah, I mean, I, we tend to think that. Maybe we won't even verbalize that, but there's, oftentimes there's something inside of us that says, if I could just, if I could just, that's, that's a lie, that's not true. Yeah, there's things that we could do that would enhance our circumstances, so to speak, but nothing as good as what we have in Him. See, sin is not just doing bad things. Oftentimes we define sin as doing bad things, but it's, it's making it's the making of good things into ultimate things. It's the making of good things into ultimate things. Making, you know, marriage or having kids or your job or money in the bank or the toys that we love, making those things into ultimate things. If you make anything more central to your meaning, hope, and happiness than God, listen to me, it will control you when you seek it. It will disappoint you when you get it because your heart was made for something bigger than a created thing. It was made for the creator. It'll disappoint you when you get it. It'll never be enough. And it will devastate you when you lose it because you put all of your, your eggs in that one basket, so to speak, and that basket gets dumped over and all the eggs get broken. You're devastated. You've lost your meaning, hope, and happiness. But, but crazy, it's crazy. It's because we... we we built our meaning, hope, and happiness in something that was temporal that was inevitably going to let us down. It was going to disappoint us. It's going to break our heart. You were made for something much bigger, and that was God, to find your deepest satisfaction in Him. One of the ways I'm able to identify my misplaced meaning, hope, and happiness is by my inordinate anxiety, anger, and depression. When I have this inordinate uh, anxiety, anger, depression, it's because I have misplaced my meaning, hope, and happiness. And whatever it is I've put, I have put my meaning, hope, and happiness in, whether it's a relationship or a person or a job, it's beginning to let me down, and my emotional response to that is signifying that I need to get my meaning, hope, and happiness from, from God. That's why Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. God, he's the one that we can find rest in. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying, you don't need to work for your meaning, hope, and happiness. 
That's what causes the restlessness. I'm working for meaning, hope, and happiness through a job or through career, through advancements, through money, through any number of things. You don't have to work for your meaning, hope, and happiness. You can work from your meaning, hope, and happiness. It's going to make a difference. It's One is you're, you're in deficit mode, and so everything becomes a means to an end for you. It's very self-centered. But the other one, you're, you're filled up. There's an abundance. I have my meaning, hope, and happiness in Him. Therefore, the way that I respond to my marriage, to my kids, to everything else in life, I'm going to be responding out of an abundance, out of a sense of security and significance. And so, verse 4, he says, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed, total fulfillment, complete well-being, happy, happier, happy beyond your wildest dreams. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. What does that mean, dwell in your house? Well, he's talking about the presence of God, practicing his presence. Those who practice the presence of God, who know God's presence, who are growing in intimacy with God and finding that deep satisfaction that only God can bring. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. So how would I identify someone who is dwelling in his house or practicing his presence or has learned that intimacy with God is life's most satisfying is intimacy with God is life's most satisfying reality. They are ever singing, ever singing your praise. Here's the next uh, idea of desire. This is a desire for a deep and lasting joy, satisfaction, not from God, his gifts, but in God, the giver. Ephesians 5, 18 through 20 talks about the spirit-filled life, and in the spirit-filled life, it says, so part of the spirit-filled life is just learning to practice his presence, knowing God, experiencing him, realizing who it is that walks through your day with you to face anything. That's the spirit-filled life, empowered with the very presence of God. And it says, one of the characteristics, it says, don't be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. And it goes on to list kind of the characteristics of what that looks like. One of those is singing and making melody to God in your heart. Just as it said here, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. See, if you love the gifts more than the giver, you'll never, you'll never be content. But if you love the giver more than his gifts, you'll be content and be able to enjoy his gifts while keeping them in their proper place. So what drives this restlessness? I think it's a failure to find our contentment not from God, his gifts, but in God, the giver. See, contentment, we talked about this. Remember when we went through Psalm 23? We started Easter and went through the whole psalm, eight weeks. And so we define contentment as this. Contentment is this inward. It's inside of us. It's not based on our circumstances, but it's something that's going on inside of us. Inward, gracious. It's a work of God's grace, so it's very supernatural. It's his favor in our lives. So inward, gracious, quiet spirit. So you're not bitter over the past. You're not complaining about the present. You're not worried about the future. See, that would be signs of restlessness. So an inward, gracious, quiet spirit that joyfully rests in the presence and providence of God. See, when you know who it is that walks through your day with you, there's a contentment. There's a contentment that, that, that is ours through intimacy with God, knowing God. It's amazing. You could face anything when you know that he is with you. He's for you, never to leave you or forsake you. He, he loves you. 
And so, uh, what's the, what did Jesus, Jesus was asked, uh, what's the greatest commandment? Anybody? Help me. What's the greatest commandment? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yep, you've got it. And, and, and so check this out. So if you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you will be content in all circumstances because you will always have what you most want, and that's God. You, you have God. It's blood-bought through Jesus Christ. What he did is indispensable, meaning there's no other way, unbelievably costly. He bled and died for you and I. He took our place for our sins, and now we have his presence. We can have intimacy with God. We can know God and have our souls deeply satisfied in him. That's the essence of the Christian life. It's amazing, absolutely amazing. And so what drives our restlessness is a failure to find contentment not from God but in God. And so, so desire to encounter, so this desire starts with desire, to encounter the living God, to find rest or satisfaction not from God, but in God, and this leads to discipline, producing discipline in our lives. Look at verse five of your, of your text of, of this um, chapter 84. Blessed are those whose strength is in you in whose heart are the highways to Zion. How many are reading a different translation where it actually says pilgrimages? Pilgrimages? Okay, so that's, that's accurate too. ESV actually says highways, pilgrimage. What is a pilgrimage? Well, it's interesting. Pilgrimages to the tabernacle were a grand feature of the Jewish life. Look at verse 7. They go from strength to strength, so they're journeying. They come from all over back to the temple to celebrate the three feasts. And so they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. So just as they would annually journey to the tabernacle to celebrate the feast, we must journey to cultivate our relationship with God through spiritual disciplines. So in essence, that was a spiritual discipline for them. We have spiritual disciplines. So here, let me give you a couple fill-in-the-blanks here. It's the next thought as it relates to discipline. It is a journey, so this discipline, it is a journey that begins in our heart going from one degree of strength to another. Did you notice that? They go from strength to strength. But notice in verse 5, it says, Blessed are those whose, whose strength is in you, in whose, heart is whose, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. So it is a journey that begins in our heart going from one degree of strength to another. So, so let me ask, let's define this. So what are spiritual disciplines? What are they? Yell them out to me. Prayer. Bible study, meditating on Scripture. How about what we're doing right now? Is this, is this spiritual discipline? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let me ask you another question. What's the purpose of spiritual disciplines? Why do, we, why do we practice disciplines? Why do we read our Bible? Why do we pray? Why do we get together with other Christians? Why do we come to church regularly? Why do we do all of that? It's to increase our capacity to, to experience God, to grow in our intimacy with God, to find our deepest delight in God. That's why you want to be a part of a church that constantly stirs up that appetite for God. Because that's where our, our problem is oftentimes. Our appetite for other things is bigger than our appetite for God. 
So let me ask you this. What would you do if you had a friend come to you and they said, hey, man, I'm really struggling with some spiritual disciplines. I don't read my Bible. I don't pray. I don't attend church regularly. I kind of show up when I feel like it. And I know that's not good. It's very bad. And I see the effects in my own life. And so I, I need some help with this. And so you sit down with them maybe at a local coffee shop, and they begin to pour their heart out to you. And they're going through a real tough time. That's what drew, drew them back to maybe becoming more disciplined. But they have no discipline whatsoever. So you're going to help them develop more discipline with the spiritual disciplines. They're not praying, they're not reading their Bible, they're not attending church, they're not maybe even connected with other Christians in any vital way. What would you say to them? How would you help them? How would you help them to work through that? I gave you the answer. It's actually the first D word. You're gonna work on their desire. Because although they might say to you, they'll say, hey, but I, I really have a desire for God. You could probably say, no, you don't. And they'll go, what? I really do. No, 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 you don't. Because believe me, if you really had a desire for God, <laughs> you wouldn't let anything get in, in the way of growing in your capacity to experience him. You're gonna do the things that will help you. You're gonna read your Bible. You're gonna pray. You're gonna, get, you're gonna hang out with other Christians. You're gonna be in places that help to stir up your appetite for God. So what we need to do is we need to work on your desire, your appetite for God. Because right now, there's other things that are more important. What if they said, well, yeah, the very first thing I do when I get up in the morning, I, I go to Facebook, I, Instagram, I try to see who posted what, and kind of I spend a lot of day kind of going back and forth with all of that, and I know I, need, I should be reading the Bible more, and, and I know, and when I get at the end of the day, I'm really tired, so I don't really feel like reading my Bible, and so I just kind of binge out on TV and the news. Well, it goes back to desire. It's you desire those things more than you desire him. We gotta work on that. You gotta pray that God will begin to give you a desire within your heart for the things of God more than the, than the things of this world, more than anything. I gave you a definition a couple weeks ago. It was on sacrifice. Sacrifice is giving up something you love for something you love more. You could actually use that for discipline. Discipline is giving up something you love for something you love more. And, that, and so what you have to do is you need to love God more. See, that's your advice. You need to love God more. Well, no, I love God. No, no, no. Let me help you. Let's love God more. Let's begin to understand who he is and what he's about. And, and you begin to help them to stir up that appetite. And it's, it's a very supernatural thing, but it also involves reading God's word and hanging out with Christians that help to stir that up. Let me give you an illustration here. Um, I had a very ambitious plan after high school. Very first thing I was going to do when I graduated, I already had a good job, but the very first thing I was going to do when I graduated is going to buy me a brand new Ranger XLT truck, fully loaded, fully loaded. I mean, this thing was silver, black interior, short wheelbase. Oh, my goodness, it was a beautiful truck, big, wide tires. Bought it from Don Sanderson Ford right off the showroom floor, and these big, wide tires with these little baby moon chrome rims, just absolutely beautiful, eight-track player. <laughs> I was cool. And if you don't know what an 8-track player is, you're really young, <laughs> okay? <laughs> that was way before your time. But, but it, was, it was a cool truck. It was a cool truck. And not only did I, did I do that, I actually did that, but I was going to continue to pursue my career in education as a pipe fitter welder. My dad was going to get me in a local union, 469 Plumbing and Pipe Fitters Union, and uh, I was going to pursue that. I was going to buy me a ski boat. I did that, bought me a ski boat. 
I had buddies that had ski boats, so we'd, we'd go out and ski a, a lot of the local lakes and have fun. I was going to buy me a house. That, that was important. And uh, become well-established financially and, and put off marriage until my late 20s, God willing, you know, however long I can put it off. I wanted to have all my ducks in a row. I absolutely wanted to have all my ducks in a row. And then I met my first wife, Nancy. My only wife, okay, I better say that, huh? My only wife, she's, she's my only wife, and she kicked over all of my ducks. She kicked them all over. I was 20 and she was 19 when we married. We spent our first year and a half living in Springerville, Arizona in an 8 by 35 foot trailer. I sold my boat. Uh, let me reword that. We sold our boat. <laughs> yeah. We started having kids, and I traded my beautiful truck in for a station wagon. <laughs> I totally rearranged my whole life plan for her and our kids. And I asked the question, why? Why did I do that? No, seriously. Somebody help me. You know I'm joking, of course. Why would I do that? Well, it's called the explosive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. Thomas Chalmers, 1840 wrote a sermon that was titled by that name, Expulsive Power of a New Affection. I think it was like the only sermon that he preached that, that's well known. I think he probably, he might have preached other good ones, but this is the one that a lot of people will quote, Thomas Chalmers, 1840, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. This is what he says, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. It's also called reordering your loves. St. Augustine called it, he said, basically, one of our biggest problems is that we have disordered loves. And then he went on, and it's a quote that I've always liked. He said this, the key to change is not the acts of the will. You want to change your life? It's not the acts of the will. It's not, it's not another list of self-help things, self-help how-to. It's not behavioral modification. You don't need another dose of that. It's heart transformation. The key to life change is not the acts of the will. It's the loves of the heart. Every day we need to work on the loves of our heart. That's why our, our loves get disordered. We need to reorder them. We need to make him the love of our heart, and then everything else falls in the appropriate place. That's why you need to find a church that helps to stir up your love for God. And you need to be around people that do that that have this passion, passionate love for God that exceeds all other passions and loves. And so when you, in fact, I, I gave you a couple cross-references here. So 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says that it's in the beholding of his glory. We become whole. What is beholding? Beholding is what our hearts are ravished by. So when we, our hearts are ravished by his glory, that's what makes us whole. There's a wholeness that comes into our life. So, so when you do spiritual disciplines, you're not looking for information or action steps as much as you are looking to get a glimpse of the only one who can satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. I hope that's why you're here this morning. You're longing to get a glimpse of the only one who can satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. 
when you've had that experience, game over. When you get a taste of him, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, 8, we just studied it a few weeks ago. Oh, my goodness. Game over. Game over. You want him more than you want anything. He becomes the love of your heart. You begin to give your heart's deepest loyalties and affections to him and him alone. And that reorders our lives. Now, you need to know, if, if that's where you want to go, you need to know where you are. And so this next fill-in-the-blanks kind of tells us, kind of helps us to identify where we are. There's three stages that we kind of have to work through. Here's the first one, is that maybe you're here and you just have no longing for God. There's no longing. And so what you need to do is repent of no longing for God. That, that's where you are. And so you just repent. Just the fact that you can even see that you have no longing for God is, is evidence of God's work. And you have no longing for God, and you realize that he, he demands and desires more than you're giving him. He's, he's much more worthy than, the, than what you're experiencing and expressing through your life. You realize, oh, God, God, you're way beyond my wildest dreams, and yet I just have no longing. And so, God, I repent. Please, please, God, help me with no longing for you. And then the next would be longing for God. Yeah, you're right there. I mean, as I'm talking, some of you are just like, whoo, you're about ready to jump out of those chairs and go, yes, yes. You have that longing for God. And then others of you, that longing for God is being fulfilled even as I'm talking, maybe even during the worship, the songs, as we were, as we were reflecting deeply on the words, those biblical words, as the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for yoga. Oh, there was satisfaction that was coming into your heart. You're living and experiencing that sweet spot of not just longing, but being satisfied in that longing. Where are you in one of those three stages? Now get ready. Let me hit you kind of hard here. This is a John Piper quote, so put your helmets on, buckle your seatbelts. He's going to hit us hard. I think, I think we need to be hit hard as it relates to our desires and our longing and our discipline with God. This is what he says. If we don't feel strong desires for the manifestation for the glory of God, it is not because we have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because we have nibbled so long at the table of the world our soul is stuffed with small things, and there is no room for the great. If we are full of what the world offers, then perhaps a fast must express, might express, or even increase our soul's appetite for God. A fast might express or even increase our soul's appetite for God. Fasting is more than just fasting food. Sometimes we need to fast. I'll tell you what. I do a lot of fasting when it comes to uh, TV, particularly news, and particularly politics. If I, I watch too much politics, I'm ticked off. I'm angry. I can't let that happen. I've got to be able to respond in a healthy way. And so I have to fast. There's other things that I fast. I'm just careful. What is it that dulls my appetite for God? What is it that stirs my appetite for God? I, I want to do those things. I'm going to go there with those things that would, that would stir up my appetite for God. What are those verses in Scripture that stir your appetite for God? Psalm 84, is, is that for me? I've got many other ones. I could take Psalm 84, begin to, as I did this last week, begin to meditate on it throughout the day. Oh, my goodness, boom! The Holy Spirit begins to light a fire in my heart. I begin to experience the satisfaction that only can be found in Him. But, but it takes some 
some fasting of other things and, and seeing my desperate need for him and spending time with him. Even as I recite those verses, that the first few times it just kind of, it seems very dull to me, but in time throughout the day as I meditate, the Holy Spirit begins to turn that logic on fire in my heart. And that's why we sing songs, that's why we study God's word, that's why we meditate and memorize God's word. Now notice what he says in verses six through nine. He says, as they go through the valley of Baca, so they're on this journey, this pilgrimage, and, and we're on a journey, as we're wanting to grow in our relationship with God, we're gonna go through valleys of Baca. Valley of Baca is weeping, suffering. You're gonna go through suffering. Notice what it says here, it's, it's amazing. It took me a while as I was studying through this to, to catch this. This is what he says, as they, that's us, go through the valley of Baca, we're going through suffering, they, that's us, make it a place of springs. That's them and us. We make it a place of springs. We don't let suffering get the best of us. We turn it into a place of springs. And you almost get the idea that God even adds to that. The early rain also covers it with pools. That's God working in our lives, even in suffering. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. Oh, Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear. Oh, God of Jacob, Behold our shield. Oh God, look on the face of your anointed. Here's your next couple fill in the blank. Suffering gives opportunity for greater levels of maturity and intimacy with God. If we don't give up and forget that God is doing great things. See, when we go through suffering, sometimes we think it's just meaningless. It's like, why is this happening? We can't see God's hand in that. But listen to me. All the when you go through suffering, your suffering is never, ever meaningless. Never, ever. God is always working. Don't forget that he's loving, wise, and in control, working all things for your good and his glory. When we forget that, we, we begin to think, oh my goodness, what am I gonna do? This is crazy. This is more than I can bear. That's why it tells us in Galatians 6, 7 through 9, don't immediately, and oftentimes this is what we do. When we go through suffering, we, we tend to give up and forget that God's doing great things. And we start sowing to the flesh, which reaps death, rather than sowing to the spirit, which reaps life. And as it says here, Galatians 6, 7 through 9, don't grow weary in well-doing because in due season you will reap a harvest. If you don't give up, don't give up. Don't give up. Don't forget. Don't withdraw. Don't binge out on Netflix. Don't try to medicate yourself in some way. Press in. God is still working. You can turn that, as he says, it's amazing. He says, as they go through the valley of Baca, weeping, they make it a place of springs. Make it a place of springs. God will meet you there. And it will be opportunity when you go through conflict, when you go through suffering, when you go through difficulty, it's great opportunity to grow in deeper levels of intimacy and maturity in God. That's what he's doing. He's wanting to grow you up. He's want, wanting to draw you closer to himself. That's what God's doing. So that's why we need to walk by faith and not by sight as it tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. I have never heard anyone say that they have grown in greater levels of maturity and intimacy with God during times of ease and comfort. I, I never have. It's always, 
It's always in times of suffering. There's uh, something that I teach in our, our Game of Life. If you've never gone through the Game of Life, I'd encourage you to sign up for that. We'll start it up in September. But uh, it's called the Golden Triangle. Well, the tri triangle is really how God transforms our life. It's a spiritual formation. And there's three sides to the golden triangle. There's three things that God does to transform our life. One side would be the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit's work in our life. The other side would be spiritual disciplines, prayer, Bible study, hanging out with other Christians. But what do you think the third side is? We're talking about it, suffering. Oh, boy, transform my life. I got the Holy Spirit doing spiritual disciplines. Suffering, that's what he's going to use. He always uses that in our lives. I think that we're unable to make our valleys of Baca weeping into a place of springs because of our lack of spiritual disciplines. If you're just not, you know, if you're cavalier, casual about your spiritual disciplines, reading your Bible prayer, coming to church regularly, when you go through suffering, you have the Holy Spirit, but you don't have the spiritual uh, disciplines to nurture and to increase your capacity for God. You're going you're to get taken out. You're going to find yourself, as we said, you're going to give up. You're going to forget that God is doing great things in your life, and that's because you're not doing the spiritual disciplines. Here's what I was thinking. Holy Spirit, you got the Holy Spirit if you're a Christian, minus spiritual disciplines is like waiting to run a marathon without ever training. That's crazy. You're going to get taken out. You're not going to make it. You can't survive that. And, and so that's what we need. We need that. So desire for an encounter with the living God leads to spiritual disciplines and suffering that bring delight, that bring delight. I love these verses. Maybe you've memorized them. I mean, too often we've heard these, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Okay, okay I, you've, you've, you've sang the song, the song's been out for a long time, and familiarity breeds complacency and maybe even contempt. So, so let's read those again, maybe for the first time, almost like it's like the first time. Listen to what he's saying. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Now, he's, this is a tool of poetry. It's a figure of speech. I understand that, but I wanna, want us to take it kind of literally. So here's your next fill in the blank. A day close to God is better than a thousand days Anywhere else. It's a figure of speech, but I calculated the 1,000 days to kind of turn it into something kind of literal. And so 1,000 days is close to three years. Close to three years. And so he's saying, a day close to God is better than 1,000 days close to three years anywhere else. Now turn to the person next to you and tell them where your favorite vacation spot is, okay? Favorite vacation spot, real quick. How many are thinking anywhere but here in August, huh? <laughs> yeah. And you're probably thinking, man, why, why are we here? What are we doing here in August? Phoenix in August. Okay. So, so let's put it a different way. A day close to God is better than a thousand days in your favorite vacation spot. I mean, how many would like to have, uh, go to your favorite vacation spot for three years paid? You're still getting a paycheck from wherever you're working? How many, any, anybody, any takers? Yeah, baby, three years. And he's saying one day close to God is better than that. And, and, and it's, it's figurative language. It's poet, poetry. 
And so and here's what we need to keep in mind also is to come and go from God's presence. So you're here, we're in God's presence, we're being energized, we're engaging with the living God through his words, through song. And so to come and go from God's presence is refreshing. And if you leave here and you don't think about God maybe for a few days, it's still refreshing to, to come and spend time with God and maybe, to, you know, Tomorrow morning, you get up and you spend some time with God and then you move on and you don't think about God until the next day. So to come and go from God's presence is refreshing, but to live in God's presence is heaven on earth. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So so when we gather and you read your Bible through your personal devotions, you hang out with other Christians, the the point is so that, that he goes with you throughout the day. You cultivate this intimacy with him, you practice his presence. And he's saying one day close to God is better than a thousand days anywhere else. Take a look at, uh, take a look at B, verse B of 10. He says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. So here's your next fill in the blank. The lowest position with God is infinitely better than living in luxury without him. I like what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He said, God's worst is better than the devil's best. That's true. That's true. Here's my take on it. Being a janitor with God is better than being Tom Brady with six Super Bowl rings without him. Okay? How about this one? Being in Phoenix in August 112 with God is better than being in San Diego 70 degrees without him. Now, the first service, a few said, that's kind of questionable. <laughs> and so pray for them. <laughs> They're struggling. <laughs> Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 were some verses that we, uh, we had our kids memorize when they were growing up in our home, a number of verses we had them memorize, but these were verses that were really significant for us as a family. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, it says, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast that he knows God. What that verse is saying is is that the wisest, strongest, and richest people on this planet have nothing on those who know God. Okay, so life didn't go as planned. Join the party. Or maybe life has gone as planned. What difference does it make? Better is one day in his courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the, in the tents. It's temporal. He uses the word tents, tents because it's temporal. All the fortune and fame is temporal. All the gain is temporal. I'd rather have his presence than anything else this world offers. He ends this really an amazing way. For the Lord God is sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Verses 11 and 12 contradicts the lie Satan told in the garden. If you obey God, you won't be happy. You're not going to be satisfied. God is holding out on you. He doesn't have your best interest at heart. Here's your last fill in the blank. You can trust his goodness because he always, he always has your best interest at heart. See, sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with him. God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. And when we are most satisfied in him, we are crucified to this world 
Holiness is being so happy in God that sin loses its appeal. You find such delight in him. Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Here's the last quote from C.S. Lewis. All of these quotes have had a major impact on my life. Listen to what he says. This one's a little bit lengthier, but it kind of summarizes everything we've talked about. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. In other words, the Caribbean cruise, we are far too easily pleased. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? So Father God, our purpose in life is to glorify you by enjoying you forever and nothing will satisfy us more. We confess, we repent that we too often exchange the truth of you for a lie and we worship and serve created things more than you, our creator. So we pray that you would stir up our desire for you beyond any other desire, making us more disciplined spiritually, increasing our capacity for greater levels of maturity and intimacy with you, especially in times of suffering so that every day, every day we will experience more and more delight in our relationship with you, walking with you, enjoying you, obeying and serving you, we pray in your son's beautiful and glorious name. And everyone said, amen. Love you guys.